Jesus is identifying himself as the light of the world, which as we've seen, taps prominent into demon John. very prominent from the prologue onward. You even think of passages like Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. So this is not just creation symbolism. This is also messianic. Right. And it's also just like with the water imagery, you know, when you go back and look at the Old Testament, when he is described as the light of the world, we're being connected to Yahweh again, not just some nice teacher. For over 25 years, the Whitehorse Inn Radio and Modern Reformation magazine have been trusted voices creating resources loaded with faithful gospel teaching and encouraging the sheep to connect with faithful shepherds. We've prepared a special resource I hope you'll consider requesting as a thank you for your gift of $50 or more. Focused on The Good Shepherd, these 10 Whitehorse Inn extended-length programs, and seven Modern Reformation articles will bring you comfort as you're steeped in the image of God in Christ working on behalf of His people. Head on over to whitehorseinn.org forward slash shepherd or call us at 1-800-890-7556. Thank you for your support. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, welcome back to the White Horse Inn as we're continuing our discussion of John chapter 7 with our special guest, Andreas Kostenberger. He's the research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. And he's the author of a number of books and articles on the fourth gospel, including the chapter on John in the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, edited by Carson and Beale, which is a fantastic resource. Andreas Kostenberger, thanks for joining us again for the second program as we're making our way from chapter 7 to chapter 8 of John's gospel. Great to be with you. So in our last program, we were discussing the fact that many of the things that Jesus says in John 7 are specifically related to the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's provision of water from the rock in the days following the Exodus. This is actually something that Paul brings up in his letter to the Corinthians. So he writes to the believers there in Corinth saying, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What do you think Paul there means when he says that rock was Christ? We're dealing with the same imagery of, of God providing nourishment, life, in the wilderness, and he says that rock was Christ. Yeah, I think it's probably— that's what Christ is claiming here, right? Exactly. I was going to say, it, it's just a clear tributary, if you will, to this idea that you see in John 7 here, that God ultimately is the source of, of water, which is an emblem of life. And I think what's interesting here is there's a lot of debate, as you know, about this idea that the, the phrase, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. So of whose heart, right? Is it Jesus? And again, that's a very tempting interpretation because, of course, we're naturally inclined to see Jesus yeah. as a source. But I think uh, many, including myself, tend to think that it may actually look forward to the one or the people who believe in Jesus. Yeah. Ezekiel says, you know, he will take your heart of stone right. and make it a heart of flesh. And in that same context, he talked about sprinkling clean water. Exactly. So if we go back further from the time of Ezekiel yeah. to the first imagery of water coming from a rock, <laughs> exactly. then we're at the scene yeah. of Moses where 
You have the source of God's provision for yeah. their wilderness wandering, which is being commemorated here at the Feast yeah. of Booths. Yeah. So that's the source. And then it's that theme is bounced around through all the prophets. You and now Jesus, it. Jesus yeah. is summarizing it it's all. It's still, even if we say that the out of his heart to his refers to the believer, it still doesn't take away from the fact ultimately God is the source mm-hmm. through the Messiah. But then I think what Jesus is saying here is that believers themselves who benefit from Christ's salvation and atonement will in turn be sources of rich blessing. And you almost see what happens in terms of God's judgment on Israel. You see that in the vineyard song as well, that basically things kind of like like the pipes got clogged up there. And Mm. so the blessing couldn't flow through to the nations. And so Jesus steps in and he's the vine and his new Messianic community are the branches off that vine. And so uh, they bear fruit. There are a number of passages in Zechariah's prophecy which ties into the idea of living water. First of all, you have in 12.10, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look upon me, on him they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as an only child or firstborn. So you have this uh, Yahweh being pierced. Then, just four verses later, in that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David. Absolutely. And as uh, th- that very passage is quoted, of course, explicitly both in John, in John 19. 19 and even in Revelation chapter yeah, 1. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, we have clear warrant to, to yeah. induce and invoke this passage here as well. Then six verses later, we find the words, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. The shepherd theme will come up in John 10. Yeah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know, Jesus himself quotes that passage. It's applying exactly. to him in Matthew 26. Mm-hmm. And then just a few verses later, chapter 14, on that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. So exactly. that you have the piercing of God and a fountain being created to cleanse us from sin and living water flows out of Jerusalem. And that's what Jesus is hinting yeah. at here. And I think that's what we're talking about, that you see that cluster of messianic references including water symbolism and so forth which you see not just in one of the prophets but you see that converge in Zechariah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and so this is the the almost the river of prophecy that all then comes to you know it's it's fruition in Jesus verse 39 now Jesus said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What do you, what do you think he's getting at here? It sounds like the, the image of water is maybe an image or a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so I mean, just briefly, like I mentioned a minute ago, this is some sort of a, uh, it's always, always the strange sounding reference here because it is, John seems to be getting so far ahead of himself in the narrative. Uh, you might compare it to uh, Luke 9.51, where, where Luke, you know, about uh, third through his gospel refers to the ascension. Yeah. Uh, and so here, John refers about a third into his gospel to Jesus' glorification. You can really go all the way back to the the prologue, uh, I think we briefly touched on that, which says, uh, but to all who did receive him, to, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here it comes, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's where, where John, for the first time, talks about the need for regeneration. And then, of course, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in chapter 
three about this as well. And and there again, he, he gets into the issue of water too. It's those right. who are born from above of water and spirit. Exactly. Which Probably is what's happening here too. Reflecting this, Ezekiel, yeah. most likely chapter uh, 36, I think it is. And Nicodemus there serving as a representative of Judaism as a whole. Yeah. I think it's not even just him personally, even though it certainly is that. But you see the pronoun shift at some point from second singular, you know, to second plural, which in English sometimes is lost. They obviously have to say you all, you know, because he's y'all. <laughs> yeah, right. He's including, you know, Nicodemus and your fellow yeah, Jews right. in this orbit, which again tying in with Ezekiel thirty seven, the valley of dry bones, coming to life, the idea of national uh, resurrection, if you will, right. and and renewal. So you think um, water in that sense is, especially in a desert environment, it's the source of life. Yes. And the spirit is the source of life. So that's why it's used metaphorically as an image that relates to that which gives life. It's a great example of how historical background research yeah. can really unlock a passage for us because in our day, of course, you know, we take we water, water for granted. Yeah, take it for granted, exactly. Um, you come from a Baptist background. There are some who take Jesus' words to Nicodemus and apply it to baptism. And it sounds mm-hmm. like what I'm hearing you say is that it's not necessarily a reference to baptism. It's, yeah. it's a reference to the Old Testament imagery about the power of the Spirit. Yes, and I, I think uh, it, it, it makes more sense in context there to not tell Nicodemus he needs to be, you know, water baptized, if you will, uh, but rather to say, well, don't you know, have not, you not read those passages yeah. and those yeah, that's prophets? The key. Yeah, you know, yeah. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these <laughs> exactly. things? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you see the references to living water to the woman at the yeah. well in the next chapter, right. which, again, don't talk about water baptism, which, you know, wouldn't yeah. make much sense to her. We have similar language in John 6 mm-hmm. where he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Here, spirit is joined with life, not water, but water conveys that idea of life in the same way. So in yeah. John 4, in John 3, and in John, here in John 7, spirit and life are going together. And it all takes us back to yeah. Exodus, where yeah. he gave them yeah. life, right? And in the prologue, uh, you see that the life theme is prominent as well, and him was life. Right. You know, and so then you see that fleshed out, yeah. as you mentioned, in various ways, water symbolism, bread of life, right, bread, water, you know, essentials for life. And then beyond that, in John 10, talks about that Jesus gives abundant life. So there's yeah. a bit of a climax of this idea that it's not just life, it's yeah. abundant life. Yeah. It's never-ending yeah. life, the source right. of eternal, eternal life. life. Yeah. So now the narrator's comment in John 7.39 seems to point to a still-yet-future event in which the disciples mm-hmm. will receive the Spirit. So if the Spirit has not yet been given, how was it that some people believed in Jesus? What's the best way you think to explain that? Right. Okay. So there's two things I would say here. Uh, on the one hand, the word believe in John's gospel doesn't always refer to saving faith. Uh, so we always need to put different lenses on uh, and, and read John's gospel. There is a, a spectrum here. For instance, in John two twenty three to 25, it says, many believed, it even says they're in Jesus' name, maybe alluding to the prologue, uh, but then John immediately adds that Jesus himself did not entrust himself, he didn't trust those professions of faith because he knew what was in people's hearts. And then immediately he follows that up with the example of Nicodemus. 
The other observation, which may be even more pertinent in response to your question, is that, that I think Jesus' statement here is probably more generic. I think he's saying that the one who believes in him, meaning maybe the, the ones who would believe in him in the future— would be a source of spiritual blessing for others. So I think this is more of a forward-looking statement, which refers to those who would believe in Jesus later and who would receive the Spirit subsequent to Pentecost and then would become a source of blessing to others. Yeah. Do you think it's also possibly referring to what happens in John 20, where Jesus breathes on his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit and then talks about that ministry of forgiving. If you forgive the sins of others, they are forgiven. So there is the declaration of pardon, which communicates forgiveness and liberation. Yes. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. To find out how to support our efforts, check out the support page of our website, whitehorseinn.org. If you are new to the White Horse Inn, be sure to click on the first-time visitors link from our homepage, where you can order our free intro kit. By signing up for this kit, we'll send you a complimentary copy of the current issue of our magazine, Modern Reformation, along with a set of our most recent extended-length Whitehorse Inn CDs, which includes a great deal of additional material not aired on our radio or podcast editions. Again, we'll send you a sample copy of our magazine, Modern Reformation, along with extended-length editions of the Whitehorse Inn on CD, completely free of charge. All you have to do is request our intro kit. Simply look for the first-time visitors link on our homepage at whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn as we're discussing John chapters 7 and 8 with the help of Andreas Kostenberger, author of A Theology of John's Gospel and Letters. In John 7, verse 40, we read that uh, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village of David? So there was a division among the people over him. What strikes you as being significant about the way the hopes and expectations of the people are described here? Yes, uh, the prophet, of course, uh, refers to the prophet like Moses, uh, as mentioned in uh, Deuteronomy 18, who's commonly expected. Uh, in the first century, actually, it seems that the prophet and the Messiah were often viewed as two separate figures. Yeah, you see uh, that we in the Dead see Sea Scrolls. That, yeah, even in John 1, 21, those were separate questions for John the Baptist. And then, as you mentioned, the people at Qumran, they expected the coming of as many as at least three end-time figures, the prophet, and then not one, but sometimes three, yeah. sometimes two or three yeah. messiahs, the royal, the priestly messiah. And so, in this case, the objection that the Messiah would not come from Galilee but be born in Bethlehem is Johanna and irony all over again, of course, because I think John's readers almost across the board would have understood perfectly well that even though Jesus operated in Galilee, he was in fact born in Bethlehem in the first place. So, yeah, and it's interesting <laughs> because he seems to assume that his readers know that. He doesn't right. explain it with no. a narrative comment. So he may just be assuming the knowledge on the part of his readers that they know the full story. Oh, some working knowledge. I mean, you you see, just to give a couple quick examples, Andrew is referred to as Simon Peter's brother. Yeah, they know <laughs> so that. They yeah. know that. Or, or they know that John the Baptist had not been put in prison. Well, but they right. didn't even know that he had it if you're only reading John's gospel. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think in this case, uh, you know, it is just uh, ironic that what, what is presented as an objection by some people turns out to be the exact opposite uh, because Jesus did fit the bill in that he was born in Bethlehem. So I think it's more, as, as John says at the end of his verse, so there was a division among the people over him, which my paraphrase would be people were just confused. Yeah. Uh, and part of the division was not because Jesus was unclear in his claims or uh, had not performed the, the, the signs that were in keeping with prophetic prediction of what the Messiah would do. The problem was really in people's heads and in, in their conflicted expectations. They couldn't even agree with each other on yeah. who the Messiah was going to be. So no matter who the Messiah turned out to be, there were going to be some. Yeah. He was not going to fit with their preconceived notions. And they were they were pulling at strands in the Old Testament. They just didn't know how all, all those strands came together in one person who is prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. So people are, are thinking about all those different promises, but they just didn't know that it was going to be one person. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, First Peter 1, 10 to 12 tells us even the prophets were not exactly sure exactly the time, yeah. exactly, you know, the the person. But, but I think what we're seeing here is that the common people, they're even more confused right. than that, you know, they, because they just pulled in strains of tradition here and there, and they couldn't reconcile them. Now, in verse 50, Nicodemus came and said, uh, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? I think you see that disdain for Galilee. You know, you see that yeah, in, in chapter yeah. one, the Daniel disdain for Galilee. Yeah, exactly. And so this is part of this. So I think they're just hurling some verbal abuse yeah. at Jesus or anybody who would be tempted to right. give any credence to his his words, like the temple guards do, Nicodemus does. Because to some extent, this is really a battle for popular opinion. And I think that's what you see in chapter 7. Mm -hmm. You have the crowds, and John very skillfully uses them as part of his characterization. It's almost like the jury in a trial. Right. And so they're listening to Which the Pharisees. Which with that picture of it being a trial narrative. Yeah. And they listen to Jesus, and, and you see they're torn, right? I mean, yeah. you can't deny some of the incredible claims Jesus stakes and, and, and the works he does. And at the same time, they... they, they as we mentioned earlier, they are afraid of the Jewish authorities because they know that they're very antagonistic and yeah. and hostile. Now we get to the uh, the famous conclusion to John chapter 7, where we're told that they each went to his own house in verse 53. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So this is the uh, introduction to the famous seen with the woman caught in adultery. And I've actually asked a number of New Testament scholars about this passage, such as D.A. Carson and Craig Blomberg, Daniel Wallace. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of them have been convinced that this passage was a later addition. What's your take? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to uh, conclude otherwise. I mean, to go no further, 753 to 811 uh, interrupt the flow of chapter 7 and 8 even geographically, as, as, as you alluded to there, it says here that, you know, then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and then early in the morning, presumably the next day, you know, but then you're back in chapter 8, verse 12, seamlessly picking up where 752 leaves off. Yeah. So to go no further, just from a narrative standpoint, this is, it's very intrusive into the flow of the narrative. Yeah, I am totally with you. Mm -hmm. This is the way John works. He'll take an idea like in John mm -hmm. 6, and everything is relating to this imagery of the bread Absolutely. and the manna from heaven. And the entire theology, 
fits with that section. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening here at the Feast of Booths. And you have all yeah. the, the theology surrounding the Feast of Booths. Well, what we found in John 7 was that this was the last day of the feast. Right. So if you have here this break of a new day, exactly. well, you've, you've ruined the theological significance of everything that happens yeah. in the next yeah. few days. And so that's the literary argument against inclusion. Then there's also the linguistic argument that I think it's demonstrable that whoever wrote the so-called pericope of the adulterous woman, it was not the evangelist because there is – a large number of words that are found here, but nowhere else in the entire gospel. And what's also interesting, conversely, there's a lot of words that are very frequently used in the gospel of John that are not found a single time here. And so clearly when it comes to style, right? And we all have our typical way of communicating and, and writing. And so clearly the author of this particular pericope was somebody other than the evangelist. I think that's demonstrable. So you have the literary argument, you have the linguistic argument, and then add to that, as you mentioned, the external evidence and the lack of even patristic references to this. I think a few people have tried to argue that there's one or two earlier references, but I'm not convinced of that. I think for the most part, again, you're back to the 4th or 5th century when you see the first reference. Same with manuscript evidence. I read one of the fathers that this appears here in John, but in other texts it appears somewhere in Luke's gospel. And uh, Daniel Wallace said, we actually have those manuscripts. So, you know, it seems like a story looking for a home. Now, looking ahead in John's gospel, so if you see chapter 7 not as having a break in day, but chapter 8, yeah. verse 12, continuing that last great day of the feast, which makes sense theologically, as we've said. When do you see that day ending? Yeah, so I basically see the, at least the narrative, uh, starting in 7-1 and then continuing through the end of chapter 8. Uh, you have the climactic pronouncement before Abraham was, I am. Uh, and then Jesus is hiding himself from the temple, which again is a sign of judgment. Yeah, he leaves the temple in verse 59, yeah, the right. very last verse of chapter 8. Mm-hmm. And then you have a mild transition, if you will, as he was passing by in chapter 9, verse 1. So clearly there you see a That's where he heals in, the man born blind. Exactly. So you see a change in, in location. So it's interesting that at this section, even in chapter 10, you don't have a real hard break. Yeah. You know, it kind of continues right on. So you can tell we're in this two-month period, like I mentioned, where Jesus is in Jerusalem at Tabernacles and later on at dedication. Mm -hmm. And so this is is this, yeah, right. And so this is this in-between time where John selects some key events. What's interesting, though, is what you read in 914, which says it was a Sabbath day on the day in which Jesus healed the man. He leaves the temple, sees the man as he's leaving the temple heals the man, and that last great day of the feast would have been a Sabbath day. So that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. It would have been one of those special Sabbaths. Yes. And then there's one final tie-in with the Feast of Booths that I'd like to discuss with you. According to the Mishnah, the requirement of the dwelling in the booths are for seven days, and every day they walk around the altar one time and say, Aniwaho, save us, we pray. And that phrase, Aniwaho, basically means I am he. That's from the divine declaration from Deuteronomy 32, behold, I, even I am he, there is no God besides me. But it also appears here in John 8, where Jesus says, 
unless you believe that I am he, you will die in, in your sins. In other words, there's another tie-in, because mm-hmm. if that was part of the sacred liturgy yes. at this particular feast, and this is language we're finding in, on Jesus' lips. Yes, and I totally agree with that. Uh, and of course, the uh, the I am statements uh, are also very prominent in John's Throughout gospel. Throughout the gospel, Exactly. Yeah. And so what is interesting is now Jesus is continuing in, in chapter 8, verse 12, and he's identifying himself as the light of the world, which as we've seen, uh, passed prominent into theme in John. very prominent from, from the prologue onward. Uh, you even think of passages like, you know, Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. So this is not just creation, imagery, and symbolism. This is also messianic right. symbolism light here. Light to the Gentiles. Uh, and and so here, this is, again, pregnant with meaning in light of the messianic expectations that we've seen voiced in, in chapter 7. And, uh, of course, chapter 9, verse 5, repeats the phrase, I'm the light of the world. So there's even an interesting connection, very much like the kind of thing that John does, connecting chapter 8 with chapter 9. Which Especially is the in light next. of the healing of the blind man. So the right. light of the world with the healing of the blind man is tying it in as well. Yeah, so you see that, you know, there might be a soft transition in nine one, but it's not a hard one. Right. Right? I mean, he continues right on. So you see that in chapter 8, verse 20, John writes, these words he spoke in the treasury, including identifying himself as the light of the world, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet Come so that is a bit of a of a um, conclusion, if you will, at this point that ties in that statement with the temple treasury, which of course would have been the place where offerings would have been brought. It's actually um, the court of women, right? Yes, yes. That way, women could come in and deposit their, their... exactly like the the widow's mite. Right. I think is mentioned. This is again from the Mishnah. At the end of the first day of the Feast of Booths, the priest went down to the court of women where there were four great candle holders there, and they would ascend the ladder to light each candlestick. There was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up from the light. Yeah. In this same courtyard where Jesus is declaring himself to be the light yeah. of the world. It's great to visualize that background, isn't it? Yeah. I think it just adds... It illuminates, you know. <laughs> That's so, an appropriate metaphor. <laughs> so much of, of what Jesus is saying here uh, in, in, in its original Jewish context. Yeah. yeah, especially when you think of it both as looking back to the Exodus because you yeah. had that angel right. of the Lord who went before the people as yeah. a pillar of cloud and fire, Definitely. which lit up the night. Right. But also looking forward to the expectation of the prophets that here a light for the Gentiles will shine. Yeah, and of course there's this escalation that those were just torches that were lit up, you know, for a few days, but then Jesus is the light of the world forever. So Jesus is the essence and the final fulfillment, you know, in an ultimate sense. And it's also just like with the water imagery, you know, when you go back and look at the Old Testament, Yahweh himself is the fountain of life. Similarly, in the uh, Old Testament, uh, we read about the light imagery. Psalm 36, for example, for with you is the fountain of life. Mm. In your light do we see light. When he is described as the light of the world, we're being connected to Yahweh again, not just some nice teacher. <laughs> and it's it's tempting now to bring up, you know, Revelation 21 and 22, because there you have the final culmination, even within the Johannine corpus and within Scripture as a whole, where you see there's no more need for light in heaven because God will be there and he will be our perennial light. And yeah. uh, there was we'll do the river of life 
uh, flowing through the city. Both light and, and so, water. Exactly. So you see even yet another stage of fulfillment, if you will, further down the road in Revelation at the very end of history. Well, my guest for this program has been Andreas Kostenberger, who is Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of a number of helpful resources related to the fourth gospel, such as Encountering John, the Gospel in Historical, Literary, and Theological Perspective. Andreas Kostenberger, thanks so much for helping us to better understand this incredibly significant part of John's gospel and for being with us on the White Horse Inn. Jane, I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, fascinating conversation. For more information about our 2019 series through the Gospel of John, simply head to whitehorseinn.org slash john. And there you can submit questions for us to answer on the program, sign up to receive our e-newsletter, or make a one-time donation to help support our efforts. Once again, the web address is whitehorseinn.org forward slash john. 